Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the wake of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. So please bear with us if there are any issues with sound quality. On the 7th of April, China announced no new deaths from COVID-19. This comes months after grappling with the virus through a slew of measures to combat it. With a remarkable drop in the number of infections and deaths, COVID hotspots like the city of Wuhan that experienced an extraordinary lockdown are finally opening up. Closer home in India, the government has ordered an unprecedented 21 days of lockdown with a possible extension ahead of us. It places severe restriction on the movement of citizens and a strong emphasis on social distancing. Yet, there is palpable concern on how India can better prepare itself in the coming weeks and months to tackle and contain the virus if it spreads aggressively. In this episode of Interpreting India, I am joined by Anand Krishnan to discuss the trajectory of COVID-19 in China, Beijing's strategy and approach in containing the virus and what if anything india can learn from china in its own fight against the pandemic anant is currently a journalist with the hindu previously he was a visiting fellow with brookings india and the china bureau chief and associate editor for the india today group based out of beijing anant has closely tracked sino indian relations and indeed china for over a decade and has been one of the most insightful indians writing about china anant It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Srinath. Anand, you've been one of India's longest-standing observers in China, and you have seen many things in the time that you spent there. Uh, in the last twenty years or so, China has seen so many uh, major crises. There was the SARS epidemic. There was a global financial crisis. Uh, there was the earthquake before that. and of course more lately there has been all the story around the trade war and the coming slowdown of the chinese economy and so on but this particular crisis seems to be something totally off the charts doesn't it no absolutely shinath i think this is something that's on a far higher magnitude than all of those uh, crises you just mentioned from sars in 2003 to the financial crisis in 2008 Uh, and to the trade war more recently, uh, and I, I thought it was quite interesting. I was just looking at one of the speeches that President Xi Jinping was giving uh, at the party school in Beijing late last year, where he was kind of highlighting the main risks that China was facing, and everyone thought the trade war was this unprecedented challenge that was going to occupy their attention uh, for the next few years. And then this sort of just came out of the blue. I mean, they've been she uh, has been warning of black swan events, but this was clearly the mother of all black swan events. I think that no one uh, expected in Beijing. Now there has been a lot of talk about why and how China actually did not report the onset of the pandemic, uh, and thereby delayed in some ways the global response as well. There's been a lot of name calling. We'll we'll talk about some of the international dimensions of it, but I just want to understand from your standpoint, uh, where exactly was the problem in the Chinese system, uh, given that it is at some level 
centralized by the provinces also have a lot of power. There is a fairly good information aggregation system uh, within their political structure. So where exactly did things fall through the cracks? Or was it simply an attempt to cover up, as some critics are alleging? I think, Sheena, there definitely was a cover up. But the question is, who covered up what and when? And I think, uh, as you know, China's system is so opaque. Uh, the decision making uh, is so opaque that we may never know uh, whether it happened at the level of Wuhan or at the level of Beijing, I think what we can we can see some things with certainty. The first is that the Wuhan leadership at the municipal level clearly made a huge blunder by playing down this crisis that was happening. We know for a fact that by mid December there were cases uh, of severe pneumonia which they couldn't identify, and we know. And in any country, it's difficult when you're faced with a completely new virus. Uh, I, I think we can grant them that fact that the doctors didn't quite know what they were dealing with in Wuhan in December. But we do know that by December 31st, which was the day that Wuhan alerted China's National Center for Disease Control, we know that by December 31st, doctors in Wuhan were very concerned uh, they were telling their colleagues that there was reason to believe this was spreading uh, between it was contagious. Uh, and we know that nothing happened pretty much from December 31st until January 20th was when President Xi made his first public comments of it. So I think those 21 days, uh, there were mistakes being made. And I think a lot of it was because the Wuhan leadership was playing down the magnitude of what they were seeing. One reason I've seen, which I find plausible, is that it just happened that Wuhan's annual party congress was from January 11th to January 16th. And during this entire week, they announced zero cases, which was completely contrary to what doctors were seeing. And doctors knew they were lying. So we know mistakes were made at the level of Wuhan. But then I think there are two sides to China's response. There's what happened from December 31st to January 28th, and then what happened after that, which is when you saw that they handled things fairly effectively uh, from the national level. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the second phase, so to speak, uh, you know, because in some ways, uh, despite all the criticism, uh, the, the kind of tactics and approach that China has adopted seems to have been emulated in many different countries, of course, allowing for changes in local context. Uh, but uh, how, how would you sort of analyze and evaluate the Chinese playbook post say, the third week of January. Right. I think it's yeah important when we look at China's response to look at the two phases of it. Um, and I find that people are finding it difficult to accept that it's both true, that they covered up, and it's and it's and the fact that they were able to mount a very effective national response that is providing a lot of valuable information to countries around the world. And both these things are true at the same time. And if you look at the national response, I think obviously the big shock was the locking down of Wuhan and Hubei on January 23rd. I happened to be in Beijing on a, on a holiday. Uh, January 11th was when I got there because we had no idea that all this was happening. So on January 20th, I was in Beijing when President Xi's comments were made to the public, and you had China's leading epidemiologist, Zhong Nanshan, who came to state media and said, listen, this is a big deal. Uh, we know that it's contagious. And pretty much overnight, there was such a change in Beijing that January 21st onwards, the streets were empty. 
it kind of helped that it was the middle of the Chinese New Year holiday. So, but the, the discipline with which people went about their daily lives once they were aware of what was happening was plain for me to see. Uh, everyone was wearing masks. Uh, they were following social distancing. The streets were pretty much all empty. And this was only because of the fact that it was highlighted pretty much at every level of the government. This is a huge, serious issue. and We, we have to, uh, you know, we're in it together. And I think China is now emerging. It's been two months of a lockdown. And my sense was that, broadly speaking, the restrictions were really severe on people's lives. But my sense was people were understanding of it because they knew that they were facing something so extraordinary. And the lockdown obviously had severe implications for China, as Wuhan is in the industrial heartland of the country. And Chinese New Year is the time when there is a lot of movement as workers go back to their homes. How was this managed? I'm particularly interested in the context of what is happening in India with the migrant workers during the lockdown. Now, that's a great question. And I think it's in a way they were quite fortuitous. I mean, you can't be fortuitous with the pandemic, but the timing really helped in a way in the sense that because it was Chinese New Year, uh, the migrant workforce of maybe 275 million people, they were all already home. So they didn't have to deal with the situation that we are dealing with with people in cities who have nowhere to go and have to go back home. So what China did was they realized that they couldn't have this huge mass of people come back to work. So the first thing they did was announce that the annual New Year holiday would be extended by two weeks. So people would just be fine where they were at home. Uh, so what they've since been doing is a very staggered uh, coming out of the lockdown that's still ongoing, uh, where different provinces have been given leeway to decide how much relaxing they can do. I think fairly early on, I think the central leadership said Zhejiang, Guangdong, that are so important for China's economy, could take some steps to restart. And so now we know that around, uh, according to China's government, 100 million people, around one third of that workforce is now have now left their homes. Uh, I was speaking to a couple of people that I know uh, who have factories in South China. And so they were telling me that uh, their labor force still hasn't, as of last week, uh, they've had issues bringing their workers back only because when workers do come back, they're very, they've been forced to go through 14 days of quarantine. And uh, there's lots of checks by the local government. So they haven't really emerged yet from the lockdown. And I think the issue of dealing with people who are coming back it's playing out very differently in different provinces. So we have to see how that goes. But just to give you a sense of how complete the shutdown was, so all of February, you pretty much had no factories anywhere in China working. And according to the official figures, there was an industrial contraction of 13.5%, uh, which was the highest since 1990. And so, Srinath, you know if official figures are saying it's minus 13.5, one can only imagine what the situation was. And while all of this workforce was uh, either back home or not working, what exactly did the Chinese government do to ensure their survival, sustenance, uh, and, and you know what kinds of economic, financial, fiscal, monetary policies were taken uh, by the government? So again, it's difficult to know uh, nationally what was happening. And my suspicion would be that there would be very different scenarios depending on where you were in China. I think. 
there was such severe, we still don't know the extent of what exactly happened in Wuhan and Hubei in January. Because of the lockdown, there were anecdotal reports of, of resource crunches, of people not getting having access to resources. And it's frankly a black box. I don't know how bad things got in Wuhan and Hubei. But just from my own understanding of how things have been in big cities, whether Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou or elsewhere, uh, like I spoke to someone who went back to their hometown, which is a fairly small town in, in Heilongjiang province. And uh, they were telling me uh, that the local level party committees kind of like resident associations, but part of the system in China. So they've been, they've been tasked with monitoring people in terms of ensuring they don't violate quarantines and also with giving them access to food and other resources. So they've been playing a huge role. And I think one of the things we really haven't paid attention to is the number of volunteer uh, so the volunteer personnel who've been mobilized over the last two, three months. And they've played such a huge job in terms of en- enforcing quarantines at the local level and ensuring that resources are going to people. Uh, and it took an enormous amount of mobilization, which I think really hasn't been appreciated uh, so far. Right. And at a sort of a more macro level, at, at, at the level of, say, the country and the economy as a whole, how exactly do you think the Chinese have evaluated uh, this kind of trade-off between the lockdown and its economic consequences? Uh, because I ask this question because, you know, we are currently in the midst of a similar set of debates in India. There are parallel conversations happening in so many other parts of the world. And I just wonder if there is uh, a- any sense that you have about how these competing considerations of, on the one hand, protecting the lives of the people, but on the other hand, you know, dealing with this massive economic contraction uh, and, and you know, the sort of you know, hardships that were being imposed on the working people in a day-to-day basis. How are these trade-offs really worked through the Chinese system? So I think it's really clear that for two full months, the Chinese leadership, frankly, didn't even see this as a, as a trade-off. They saw this as an all-out war to be won, and that there would be no question of relaxing restrictions until they felt it was under control. So I think they came down very strongly on the side of fighting this pandemic before considering restarting the economy. So all of January and February, you pretty much saw a complete lockdown. And I think the clearest illustration is the fact that you have this huge migrant labor force, so key to the Chinese economy, all locked up at home. And there was no sense of, uh, of, of any compromise when it came to that. So I think we've been seeing them publicly debate this trade-off more recently, I think starting in mid-March and all of the last one month. And it has been a debate that's been difficult. Um, and I think it's being played out in different ways depending on where you are. So I'd, I would say in the south of China, they're speaking more about the emphasis of getting jobs going, of getting the economy going. But in Beijing, given that it's a political capital, the focus still very much is on ensuring the virus doesn't get out of hand. So Beijing currently has far more restrictions in terms of businesses operating, foreigners, uh, in how they're dealing with people coming in from outside the city. It's far different scale than what Shanghai and Guangzhou and Shenzhen are, are, kind of are employing at the present moment. So you are seeing different approaches in different parts of China. Hubei, of course, is a category of its own. And I think even though officially they're out of the lockdown, there's still a lot of restrictions even within Wuhan of people who still can't leave their apartment blocks. 
so I think it's a fairly diversified picture. Uh, but Srinath, I think I have to say with no uncertainty that for two months, there was no debate in China that until we get this under control, we cannot even consider restarting the economy, which is something that people are debating both in India and America and in Europe right now. Okay. Other thing that I wanted to ask you was about how China mobilized its public infrastructure in order to deal with, uh, you know, this particular uh, pandemic. And, you know, we've been reading reports about saying that Chinese have converted very large scale public infrastructure like stadiums into makeshift hospitals in order to accommodate rising numbers. Uh, I mean, are there any other examples that you can think of how the Chinese government was able to actually mobilize these kind of more publicly available uh, infrastructure in order to, uh, you know, compensate for the fact that health systems might at some point actually get overrun? So one thing that they did from early on uh, was anyone who had symptoms or or been tested positive for COVID without symptoms, they were not allowed to isolate at home. So from early on, what they did was they created the space to have central quarantines, which was in some cases, it was university dormitories, or it was since since it was anyway, the holiday in China, or it was gymnasiums, or it was even hotels. So all these places were commissioned for central quarantine. And, and I think it's really important to to understand why they did that. And that's because, um, as one doctor from Wuhan was telling me when I interviewed him for the Hindu uh, a couple of weeks ago, he said that we, when we did our lockdown, we found that you know cases were going down, but we were still getting a lot of transmission amongst family members and within households. Uh, so they realized that they had to be, they literally had to go door to door. We haven't come to that stage in India yet. Uh, but they realized that the only way they were going to break the chain of transmission was if they were going to have a system of central quarantine rather than just let people isolate at homes and transmit to their family members. So what they have done was commission a lot of these uh, public infrastructure facilities that they have. Uh, and I think that one thing that people could consider, which I've seen America discussing right now, is use hotels that are anyway vacant. Uh, and that the Chinese government has been doing that both for people who are traveling. If you move from one city to another, you're put in a hotel for 14 days and checked, and then you're allowed to sort of go back to where you live. Uh, and they've been pretty systematic about that. And um, I think... The time that we have now before we reach that number of cases is something that authorities everywhere should consider making the space available. And so what they did was they made a very clear distinction between people who are asymptomatic and mild and those that were severe and critical. And so to ensure that their resources weren't overwhelmed, people who were mild and asymptomatic were not sent to hospitals at all. They were kept in these makeshift uh, facilities that they built. So I think that's something that's worth considering for every country that's dealing with a surge in the number of cases. And what do you think their approach is going to be in the period which is going to unfold now? Uh, so on the one hand, we've been seeing reports of Chinese sort of factories coming back to almost 80% sort of workforce. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of reportage around the fact that, you know, uh, the economy is slowly getting back into gear. But the crisis is clearly a big challenge still for the Chinese economy because, you know, even for such an export-driven economy, even if you end up producing, you know, where are you going to ship it? Who's going to be importing at this point of time? So in a sense, China's globalization, which was China's greatest strength, might in this context, at least in the short term, turn out to be something of a problem. 
the second related thing which struck me was you know what are the kinds of instruments that the chinese government has to wield in the absence of external demand which you know export led growth which has been their main model uh you know because the one thing that we had been reading about quite a bit over the last couple of years is that you know the old chinese model of you know financing more and more infrastructure construction etc has run its course and that the chinese banking system is kind of uh you know not looking in very good shape and that the government really wants to wean back from that but in the absence of an external sector which china can service uh doesn't it look like some of these tried and tested methods might well be the ones that the chinese government will have to deploy yet again right so i think uh, your first first question um the focus is still very much on keeping the numbers down and we've had a lot of chinese uh, public health experts coming out and saying publicly this is not over please don't think the battle is over uh, ironically shrinath china state media have been framing this in many ways as, as a victory for china but on the other hand you also have public health experts telling people do not get complacent this can come back especially because people are resuming work uh, and i think the focus the immediate focus right now is on what they're calling imported cases of people who are coming in from foreign countries and and bringing cases in which is the bulk of reported cases in china right now so on the one hand the focus very much right now is on people coming into china and ensuring that the numbers uh, are managed in terms of the economy i think that uh, you uh, you mentioned whether they're going to go back to the tried and tested um sort of methods of reviving the economy so it's interesting that so far they aren't speaking of a stimulus of the kind we saw the, with the global financial crisis in 2009 when they had a half a trillion dollar stimulus plan uh, but what they have been doing is uh, again here it's a very diversified picture where different provinces are coming up with different ways to stimulate uh, the economy as you rightly said there's a complete collapse in external demand even though there's a increase in, in demand for things like uh, personal protective equipment and masks but this is a tiny fraction of, of of what china usually exports even though the reports of many industries that are now actually moving from manufacturing car parts to doing ventilators and things like that but bigger picture they seem to be concerned that they can't rely on domestic consumption to substitute for this collapse in external demand so what there's some interesting things that i've seen for example the city of hangzhou started doing which is now being copied elsewhere in china they came they come up with the vouchers uh they realize that if you put money in people's bank accounts they're going to save they aren't going to spend so what they've done is they've come up with vouchers for example you have 30 days to use this voucher to spend on certain specific items whether it's groceries whether it's you know different kinds of whether it's technological goods or whatever what have you so this is something that i think other cities in china are now copying which is give people 30 days give them vouchers to spend and see if that helps local businesses so that's an innovative thing they've come up with which i think we can pay attention to but so far they've resisted from speaking about a big kind of stimulus package of the kind that we saw 10 years ago right and are the other parts of the chinese what you might think of as the digital economy you know the, the sort of extraordinary retail uh, online retailing platforms etc i mean how are they faring at this point of time from what i've been reading shrinath again it seems like a mixed picture uh, as it is in india for some companies 
they've done really well thanks to the lockdown for example streaming entertainment apps online education food delivery they've done really well uh, because of this crisis but on the other hand i have seen reports as well of layoffs of, especially in the startup sector where they don't have the kind of deep pockets to pay wages when things aren't going as well so make no mistake there have been layoffs especially if you come to small and medium enterprises uh, across the chinese economy but not just in the tech space but frankly anywhere uh, and they haven't so far we haven't seen them getting support from the government in terms of whether it's a low easier loans or or to help pay wages so i think it's a real concern for china as you know they are more concerned than any other country about mass layoffs so uh, i i frankly don't know how they're going to deal with that going forward especially because it's 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 such a difficult problem on the one hand you're still worried about the return of this infection at home and on the other hand you are getting absolutely no support from the rest of the world which is facing a problem perhaps on a far larger magnitude uh, so it will be interesting to see how how far they're going to go on without resorting to massive stimulus sort of support policies let's talk a little bit about the external dimension of this crisis obviously you know as we've said this is a crisis of china's relationship with globalization but i also want to talk about more traditional international political issues so to speak so one of the things that we've seen is an attempt at least by some parts of the chinese media etc to uh, suggest somehow that you know china has done so much better than the uh, other great power the united states in terms of the way that it's dealt with the crisis and that in some ways uh, that that kind of redounds to china's uh, advantage at this point of time now leaving the rhetoric and propaganda aside uh i think it's also safe to say that china has been sending equipment to other countries like masks pps ventilators uh how do you think all of this together the crisis as a whole is likely to play out for china's external standing in the rest of the world i think if you just look at for example as india as an example um i think there's no question that china's image has taken a huge hit just by virtue of the fact of where uh this pandemic came from by virtue of the fact that there seems to be a lot of awareness all over the world that they were slow to react uh that, that they were critical of people uh stopping flights and imposing travel restrictions which is what they're doing right now so there's no question that the image has taken a huge hit uh, and i think there's no getting away from that uh i think frankly that's a huge huge problem for china to deal with uh and i don't think their propaganda has helped i think it's been so, the focus at home has been to sort of highlight how well china is doing and how badly the rest of the world is doing and it's been very successful propaganda at home and i won't underestimate how effective it's been only because you know even on my wechat feeds which is a very unscientific public opinion indicator even people who are you know i would say are progressive who've lived overseas or traveled overseas i've seen so much of this kind of sentiment that you know serves these countries right for taking pleasure and how badly we were hit in january and i've seen that kind of triumphalism which is frankly a bit unsettling to see um but but beyond that uh i think that again i would i would expect to see a diversified sort of picture where some countries 
if you took look at our own neighborhood, I'm sure the Chinese support of whether it's ventilators or PEPEs or other kind of financial support would probably be welcomed, I'm sure, whether it's in, in Nepal or Bangladesh or Pakistan or elsewhere. They have been donating to India as well. Uh, last week, I think there were 170,000 PPE coveralls came in from China to India. Uh, whether or not this is going to undo some of the huge damage that the reputation has taken, I do not know, only because... I still think there is a sentiment in many parts of the world that, well, you've started this fire, so we can't really give you credit for dousing it. I think that's a sentiment that you would expect to see in many parts of the world. But as long as I think it also hinges on how the rest of the world emerges out of this. And if you're going to see this prolonged state where countries in the West are struggling to get this under control and China emerges out of it faster, I'm sure you will see a lot of the kind of spin from China saying that this vindicates their model. And that's something that you're going to hear for a long time to come from Beijing. And what do you think the impact of COVID is likely to be on the state of India-China relations? I mean, after all, there's something called the Wuhan spirit. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen to the phrase Wuhan spirit uh, going forward. Uh, but I mean, it's interesting to see that India and China have been cooperating. And India has been keeping the phone lines open. I think you've had exchanges at various levels, including external affairs minister Jai Shankar and Wang Yi. Uh, the Chinese have said they've already announced uh, the donation of 170,000 overalls. More are coming from what I've read in the news. Uh, they seem to be saying they're going to be exporting a lot more in terms of PPEs, masks, maybe even ventilators to India. In terms of sharing between scientists, frankly, I haven't seen much reported uh, nowhere on the scale of how closely Chinese scientists and American scientists have been cooperating, despite all the sort of political spats that you've seen uh, between Washington and Beijing. I think one of the striking things that has been happening quietly below the radar is right from January, there's been so much in terms of video conferencing, sharing of information between uh, scientists and epidemiologists in, in the U.S. and in China. I don't think we have that level of cooperation between India and China. Uh, but I think the Indian government has also been careful to not play the blame game, which we've seen from some countries, uh, especially the U.S. Uh, publicly, I think everything that India has been saying is, well, my sense is let's, this isn't the time to affix blame on any particular country, even though Prime Minister Modi at the G20 uh, virtual summit did make a pointed statement about the WHO needing to adapt to deal with present-day challenges. That's as far as we've said in terms of being critical about the handling of the crisis. So I think India is approaching this as something that they can work together with China with, even if the public sentiment in India, I think, is completely is on a different page. And do you think there is going to be any wider international cooperation between India and China? I mean, you spoke of G20, which has not been, at least so far, very active in the crisis. But, uh, you know, just this morning's Financial Times editorial, and we're recording on the 13th of April, uh, says that the IMF must increase the special drawing rights in order to help emerging market economies uh, see through this crisis. You would have expected in other times that countries like India and China should be at the forefront of issuing these kinds of calls. But... Uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be that much of cooperation by India and China or even the other kind of so-called BRICS economies, etc., in, uh, in, in the current context, has there? There hasn't, um, but I, I would think it is understandable only because 
I mean, everyone is so much occupied with their own national crisis at the moment. And it's quite striking that rather than global cooperation, in many ways, it's the opposite, where there's this scramble for very limited resources that are available. Every country is trying to do what it can to ensure that it has access to supplies. I think, frankly, that's one big reason why we are engaging with China and keeping China's open, because at the end of the day, we know that we need it's very possible that we are going to be needing equipment of various kinds from China. Uh, there's an interesting story yesterday saying that India, one of the shipments that uh, my home state, Tamil Nadu, was expecting from China got diverted to the United States, which in a snapshot kind of gives you a sense of how global cooperation is unfolding, where it's frankly each one for himself. Um, and I guess in some ways it's unavoidable because it's such an unprecedented challenge that countries are dealing with their focus has to be uh, first and foremost at home. So in that sense, I think that it's it's unavoidable, but I take your point. You would, you would think that there was so much more that they could be doing to coordinate, especially when uh, something like this can't be dealt with on a national level, because if, even if China emerges out of this crisis, at some point of time, they're going to happen to, they're going to have to open their borders They've banned foreign, foreign travel completely, but when they want to restart the economy, they're going to need investors to come back. They can't have, get investors to come back unless the rest of the world emerges from this crisis as well. So even though everyone is kind of each man for himself, at the end of the day, it's, we aren't going to get out of this without a more coordinated approach. And I'm sure you're waiting for the Chinese airspace to open up as well so that you can get back to your reporting. Absolutely, though I, I don't know when that's going to happen, but definitely I'm one of those waiting for that to happen. Anand, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great chatting to you about this. Thank you so much, Srinath. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage.